Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for season three, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Another three excellent guests join me this week, so please introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Hi, I'm Emma Taylor. I'm a rugby coach, um, American football coach, and an energy, a trainee energy psychologist. Oh, I'm Matt Coldry. Uh, I'm currently the programme manager of uh, the sports coaching degree at Hartbury University and a uh, passionate grassroots coach, currently uh, coaching some hockey. Hi there, I'm, I'm Emma Humes. I'm currently a coordinator of sports at Gordonston Junior School, but I also am a classroom teacher and I have a have taught a variety of sports. It's a real pleasure to have all of you on. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, just before we get stuck into things, a quick reminder for anyone listening, check out the blurb for links to all the content that we discussed today and recommendations to other high quality content. So uh, Emma, we are coming to you first. Okay, so um, I'm really interested in the links between kind of science and sports, um, really more to do with around the mental side of things. So I've looked at... Um, David Huberman, um, he's, he's got a podcast called The Huberman Lab. Um, he's done a series of work through um, dreams um, and he's recently posted one about um, neuroplasticity um, and the benefit of making errors. Um, so that's about making errors in sport and how that builds on um, an individual's neuroplasticity. Um, what I found really interesting about it was that neuroplasticity your brain obviously is plastic between the age of zero and 25 um, so it's really easy to be able to change how an individual thinks how an individual feels um, but also they're building up their own understanding of um, how things work um, and then after that it becomes a little bit harder to change this um, but they found out that obviously you can change this quicker by making errors um, so for me it's about how you can bring the principle of making errors in sport to help develop players um which is for me probably a a great kind of backup to my style of coaching um for example um on match days I'll always advise parents any other coaches that we don't shout information onto pitches um to see where players um need development what they know what they need to learn how they basically develop their own mental capacity to be able to um, adapt to gameplay um, I'll give you one example um, I actually was next to a parent and I said please don't you know please don't tell the girls what they need to do on pitch they were within a good distance um, and he was like just move across just move across and we were on the blind side and I just said, please don't, please don't tell her. And, you know, I'm the coach and I'm, I'm putting them through these um, situations. And he pushed, moved her across, but she doesn't learn from being told to move somewhere. So it's, it's secondary learning. So for her to really kind of put that into her knowledge capacity, um, which I know isn't a word and I've just made that up. Um, 
So for her to put that into um, her awareness of where she needs to be on the pitch um, is a big thing for her, her to have to learn. What would have been better for me is if she kept that blindside spare, that player ran up it and she knew to move. So next time she's developing the plasticity to be able to know, to be able to move into that space and be able to get, get that player or make an impact in a different way without being told. Um, and I think for me, you sort of see this across all age groups from early years. Um, you'll see it in schools. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of, it's a detrimental um, skill for any child, any young adult, anyone under the age of 25 to be able to learn. Um, and I think there's a, there's a fine line between coaching and mentoring and giving good advice or, you know, telling people what they need to do. Um, so it's a really, it's a really interesting um, podcast in particular, like learning from errors as well. So the ways that I would like to obviously put that into my coaching sort of moving forward is knowing, you know, you've got, say, for example, if you were, if you were coaching seniors, you know, that's, that's an easy way for you be, to be able to kind of adapt them. Bearing in mind that when they get to over 25, you'll hear in the, in the podcast that it's, it's a, it's a slowly, slowly catchy mon monkey situation because they have basically adapted it. So it's, it's slower, a uh, slower process, but that's when you start to change the plasticity using frustration, um, which is everybody's changing point. Um, so yeah, so next time you get someone frustrated, you know that it's a, it's a changing point um, and it's adaption. And, and I think, for me, knowing that that's how it works, if you're frustrated as a coach and a session is not going to plan, then you know, obviously you can bring it back round, be able to learn from it. So it's all those key learning points. Um, but I find it fascinating. I find it absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and I absolutely love that. There's yeah. a great fluency there. Is, is that actually, um, is that research-based in terms of the frustration leads to a changing point? Because I've never heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's um, so it, the brain doesn't actually he'll say he says in it, the brain doesn't actually recognize frustration. Um, it's obviously it's more of a chemical like imbalancement. Um, and that's the moment where the shifts need to take place. So say, for example, um, if I was to put it into like parenting or, you know, coaching, you would say, say, for example, if a coach was like, oh, no, let's scrap it. We won't do that that's the coach getting frustrated and, and going to something else. So it's like a learned pattern. So it's that moment where it's like actually persist with it because then you start to learn the pattern of let's stop it because it's not working. Um, so it's really kind of getting through that, the moment of frustration to be able to change it. Um, but yeah, it's all, it's all to do with like chemical balances. And obviously I don't expect every coach to be able to turn around and say, you know, I know everything about the brain, but I think it's just a very interesting um, key fact um, around it. There was a, there's another bit that he talks about, about sensory maps, um, which is like auditory, visit, uh, visual and motor. And there's like lots of experiments. So say, for example, um, you wanted to get teams to kind of work better together to put them in like, I don't know whether you've ever seen like the studies where they put different glasses on or like they change like the perception of gravity and 
children under 20, adult, young adults and children under 25 will adapt quicker than over 25s. There's, there's so many, so many interesting things in there that you can adapt into your coaching to be able to kind of work on players' key perceptions and their um, maps um, around like motor commands and sensory commands. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's super interesting. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking in terms of how, I guess, how I deal with players when they get to that point of frustration. And, and I know, um, you know, Russell Earnshaw would call that a wobble, which I think is a really nice term. Yeah. It is that little bit of a, yeah, frustration, panic. I'm not sure. I'm just uncomfortable. And, and being able to see at what stage people get to that is great. But I also, maybe we haven't explored enough how you support people through that wobble. And actually, if, if they're understanding that that's their stretch point, that's the point at which learning really can take place and, and you know, um, patterns can change and everything else, then I think there's there's probably a, a deeper conversation to be had around what we do as coaches to support players in that moment. Yeah. So there, there's a part on it and it says um, there's a there's a moment that you can work in like the neuroplasticity. Ne there's a moment where you can use utilize it so that that moment of frustration it's it talks about between seven and it takes between seven and 30 minutes so say for example you weren't like achieving what you needed to achieve it's that repetitive frustration of just making someone repetitively do it so if it was a technique or you know a skill that you kind of wanted to get in the bank to be able to use um you would want to be able to repeat it repetitively but you only want to be able to do that between seven and 30, 30 minutes for it to process and make a change. Um, so it's like, it's being, it, it's that the principle of a being uncomfortable um, and kind of working through it. Um, so I would probably say, you know, if they get to the point of frustration and they're not getting it, say, you know, you've got seven more minutes to be able to do it. And it's like, you know, if you're not getting it within that time, then, you know, extend the time you've got up to 30 minutes. Um, and I think with someone who is obviously a senior, if somewhere down the line they've learned the pattern to either quit or that frustration means something else because they've experienced something else in, you know, a past game or a past experience, then they're going to loop that to that um, situation. But the good thing with adults is that once they manage to get to the point where they can change it so they get through the frustration and they get to the point where neuroplasticity happens adults change more of the situation so whatever it is that they can't do they they will make a permanent change for future um, situations so they will learn that pattern as the new um situation so they'll rewire it basically um so it's it's valuable and also the good thing about it is that you will actually by learning to get past the frustration you will actually end up getting a dopamine reward so it become more of a reward so you know kids that you know if you say try trying to get try trying again and the kid keeps doing it they keep doing it because at the end of it there's a reward and it's a it's a chemical reward um, and I think as adults, we we kind of get a little bit comfortable and we kind of say, let's stop doing it um, because it's easy or it's something we've learned or there's other things to concentrate on. You can do other things or I don't have time. And, um, 
and things like that. So it's like it's almost like bigger, bigger picture thinking. Um, but I really like that idea. I've never heard of neuroplasticity before, but I I love that idea. Um, what I like, so I work with younger children uh, or have done most of the time. Um, I I really like the teamwork aspect. So you've got a lot of children that obviously work better as a team if you if you want someone being frustrated it's really nice to pull everyone in and talk about what's going wrong why are we not working as a team sort of talking through the frustration um I've worked with a hockey coach this term or last term sorry who just whenever something wasn't going the way he not that he wanted but just you could see the children weren't enjoying it or something wasn't quite right he'd bring them in get them into their teams and say I want you to tell your team what do you think is wrong and how are we going to change it and they, because he's he's worked with them all the way up from year two when they arrive here up to year, uh, we're up at year eight in the junior school. Um, they've learned through his coaching all the way up how to deal with it. And they just, I've never worked with children who just, they talk it out. They say, right, we're not doing this right. No one's offended. There's a bit of frustration, but they know that talking out would be better. And then they go out there and we go, right, we expect like they rate themselves as a team, like, oh, I'm like, we're only like a six out of 10 at the moment. And when they go back out there, we, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, you can see a massive difference. Like as children, they've learned that. And I wonder if that's some of your neuroplasticity, but it's, it's really interesting watching them do that as a team. Cause I don't think children do it very well on their own. They need to see others and replicate it. And as you say, I think adults, I'm not, I, I don't like, oh, I, I love watching other adults and learning from them, but at the same time, it's really scary to try something new because you're like, I know that person can already do it. And you're like, I'll just watch, it's fine. That, you know? <laughs> yeah, so you can see the difference between how quickly children can adapt and develop um, with like mentoring. So being given the tools um, and how much, how harder it is um, for adults to be able to do. Um, children, between the age of one and seven are just recording devices. Um, and they will record everything until they get to about seven or eight and they switch and then they turn into be better and then they start to kind of gauge their own opinions and how to do stuff. So they're really receptive um, with like, with taking on information. And as long as, as long as you're giving children the tools to be able to do it for themselves and lead each other, um, and for them to know it's right, you know, and as long as it's working, then, you know, that's, that's, that's great. Um, and it's, I think we can learn, we can learn a lot from how children deal with situations um, um, and, you know, take it into our own, our lives. I, I was just gonna, you know, I've, I've, I've taken loads from that. Neuroplasticity is something that we actually teach a bit of on the on our degree program. Um, we teach it in terms of uh, linking it to growth mindset, which is slightly discredited as a as a theory because it's um, basically it's difficult to replicate um, the teachings of growth mindset. But um, in Carol Dweck's book, um, Growth Mindset, she talks a lot about it's based on these fundamentals of uh, neuroplasticity and the fact that adults can change but you have to have the mindset to be and the resilience to get through that failure to um, to develop that change and almost like you're saying rewire your brain and as an adult it's harder um, because 
the paths we use in our brain are more established, whereas as a child, they're not particularly established. So there isn't one route that's more convenient than others. So as adults, it's harder to rewire. But um, I love this idea um, that MRH you were talking about of basically just creating a safe environment to fail in. And it's very much the onus of a good coach to create a safe environment. And Emma T, you that one of the threats to that safe environment is parents sometimes and the parents trying to take control and saying it's not okay to fail you should be doing this and then the psychological impact on that child is like I don't want to let down my parent who's telling me to do it like that and they're doing it to not let down their parent rather than because they've solved the problem that that's the way to do it like you're saying so the, the learning's quite shallow um, and but also they're not reacting to what they're seeing and feeling and the, all the senses, they're reacting to what they're told to do. So it, it limits learning. Um, and then the other thing, um, sorry to rabbit on for a little bit, but what you're talking about in terms of getting to the edge of the comfort zone, again, I'm going to get my nerd on and say some um, academic words, but it's um, the work of a chap called Vygotsky and it's this idea of the zone of proximal development um, and this idea that um, the key, one of the keys to um, development in people is getting them to the edge of their chat, like their limit, you know, to the to where that challenge is appropriate. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't know if that's an idea you've come across. Um, I mean, it's out there. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I went through my teach training, the Z ZPD zone of proximal, proximal development, sorry. Um, I really enjoyed that because I think, is it not about, um, I remember using it to scaffold for children to help each other. So you had a stronger child with a weaker child yeah. and you sort of become a teacher. And I always thought as, even when I was a child, if I helped someone else learn something or practice something, it helped me learn better and you know, you get better at it. I loved that yeah. idea. That was one of the main things I think I took away from my sort of teacher training and stuff <laughs> mm. and that yeah and it's it's the idea that you know like you're saying if you're just coasting you know and a lot of adults just coast we it's it's, a, it's actually a protection mechanism is the reason we don't take on challenges as adults because like you're saying we have emotional responses to failures and successes so a success we have dopamine serotonin etc which makes us feel good but a failure has the opposite we have adrenaline and we have cortisol so as an adult we learn that failure um, and what hormonal responses are is their protection and they're to limit our memories of negative um, negative events and negative experiences. So actually, as an adult, we're kind of protecting ourselves by not taking on those risks. So that's why kids are so much better in that environment to take on a risk. And it's actually the adults that limit them. I also wonder how much of this starts to come down to the identity that we're portioned to ourselves so that the, yes, there's a chemical reaction, but it's, it's the thought of I, it's, it's me, it's how I'm seen, it's how I'm perceived, it's, it's what I portray, professionalism, all these other things suddenly become almost endangered if I make a mistake. And I, I can think of a, a good example, it's really clear in my mind. So there's a basketball coach came in and did a conference in Bristol. Um, and there was probably about 40 coaches at this at this event and we're all out on the grass and he's like right great okay well who's who's going to be doing the practical stuff 
and probably only I don't know 12 of us put up our hand so off we go we're doing some kind of movement stuff and then he gets us basically doing kind of you know ball skills with rugby balls that, that he would do with basketball and just out of the corner of his eye or our eye kind of watching him watching other people you could just see him just clocking all these people on the sideline and we were the focus point but actually once the the ball skill stuff came out loads of the coaches that didn't want to get involved are just starting to throw these balls around and do some of the same practices and he stopped it at one point and we were kind of and the guys on the sideline hadn't realized and we're then just watching them and he's like so you guys didn't want to get involved, but you still want to try it. And it, it was just that kind of one step removed from being the focus um, was just really clear. And I for whatever reason, that's really stuck with me that actually, how do we create opportunities for people to try stuff without feeling like they're under pressure or feeling like the limelight is on them or, or any of that type of stuff, just to be able to go yeah I, I want to be able to do this away from that a little bit to feel a little bit more comfortable with it but still experiment and um I, I i'd be interested in terms of how you guys structure your kind of learning or coaching environments to maybe enable people to do that i think for me it would be it just it, it anytime i go into a situation it's always basics um just hashing out the basics um and just technical information. Um, I think, not to kind of generalize, but I, I think women tend to adapt to the basics and technical information first. Um, and I think men tend to go into the try and then adapt to technical. Um, so I, I, I think there's a lot, there's a, there's a bigger picture of everything to take into place, but I. I always think it has to come to basics, but it also has to come to structure as well. So thinking back to like, you've got to give them between sort of seven to 15 minutes to just give it a go and then put a system into place and have it as a basic one. And then, you know, we, we all do it. So we'll, we'll have a technical, then we'll put it into a skill and then we'll put it into a game and we'll kind of all, always build it up. Um, it, it's a fail safe system. Um, which is ironic because we're talking about making errors and being able to change things around. Um, but for me, I think that's that that kind of it kind of works for a lot of people. It's the obviously I don't know whether there's like an acronym for it, but it's the demonstration, you know, the breakdown and then like um, to try it and then develop it and then, you know, perfect it. So it's the, you know, break it down into let's think about a simple system or a divisor system where we can kind of get comfortable with doing what we're doing. That That's how I would do it. I don't know whether you guys would do the same. I would do it very similarly. I mean, every coach is sort of taught those very basic. Yeah, always make sure you demonstrate and talk it through and you build up your skills, as you say, to a game eventually. But um, what I learned, because when I, I first started tennis coaching and then I sort of built in sort of PE and other sports, and I used to call myself sort of jack of all trades. I know a little bit about most sports, but not... Um, amazingly uh, amazing amounts about any of them so when it came to coaching or teaching in a primary school PE then there were some children that knew some especially about football more than me so for some for some things I just quite liked to make mistakes and then the children would correct me and in a, you know they felt oh I know a little bit more I can be a coach and actually when I gave children the opportunity to be the coach and coach groups so 
I was struggling with a class that just didn't want, really want to listen to me sort of thing. They wanted to get out there and do what they wanted to do. So actually what I did said was, right, I'm going to name three coaches every session. I'd like those three coaches to have a little um, uh, set up and sort of practice a skill and and then the other the others will give feedback on what was good about the coach. So it's actually we were judging the coaching, but it also you obviously got across the technical content and the children loved it because they don't always want to listen to us adults. They want to listen to themselves and each other and sort of they have more some some more skills than us. I mean, that's why sometimes we use them to demonstrate something because, you know, that child can be better than you sometimes. And I used to be when I first started, I was really scared of being bad so in tennis you know if it went out and I was just like oh sorry I'd panic but now I was just like right why did it go out guys what am I doing wrong you need to fix what I'm doing and they're just so it's it's a more trusting environment the children feel like they can talk to you they feel oh adults make mistakes it's okay if I make a mistake too you know that sort of thing I now I've done excuse me I'm coaching sort of 12 13 years it's taken a long time to get to that really confident it's okay to make mistakes as an adult. So I love seeing kids make mistakes and, t- and telling each other, actually, you need to do this. It's so nice to see. Yeah, you know, I'm just listening to all this and it just it stimulates so much in my brain about sort of some of the ideas we talk about on, on the different programs. Um, so I, I also lead the PE program as well at the moment. Um, and, and we talk about this idea of replicating communities of practice. And what that approach takes into account is the social setting that our pupils, our um, players, whoever are in, and how that, the social setting, has a massive impact on how our pupils or our players develop and learn. Um, And one of the key ideas underpinning that is this idea that pupils um, or people in a group that we're coaching or teaching they have a social identity in relation to the other people around them and it's something that we need to take into account as teachers and coaches is to um, maybe create environments where those identities are clearly defined so the classic traditional PE model of we're going to go and play um, rugby um, with this mixed ability group what are the identities that are created by that social setting well you've got the players that play rugby outside of school who are going to have a really um going to be the top of the pile in terms of hierarchy of social identities you're going to have the kid that hates rugby has never played it can barely throw um a pass um wait am i describing myself at uni um, <laughs> or you know but they've got a social identity from that environment that we've created because we've created the environment that to be highly skilled is more socially valuable than to not be skilled, highly skilled so um you emma h talking about how you are comfortable making mistakes in front of your pupils is 100 percent what we should be doing because what we're doing is we're demonstrating that failure is a positive thing and you know that's creating a socially acceptable um environment to fail in um so little things like that which might seem insignificant and where we're being a bit vulnerable you know are actually really really valuable moments and you know 
you've turned it and flipped it into this wonderful teaching moment. So I, I, I listen to that and I just think, oh, that's that's amazing. I, I love that. And actually, maybe I need to do that more. I'm, I'm definitely stealing the bit about when your, your demonstration goes wrong, you just go, OK, well, correct it for me, because that that will solve a lot of my demo issues for sure. Um, and Matt, I have got to say, you might not have been able to throw a pass at uni, but a quick tap penalty to go in under the sticks and win Clash of the Codes for Rugby League and steal it from the Rugby Union boys still uh, still gets me. So that's... Um, yeah. and, and my favourite part of that was it was technically an illegal quick tap as well because it was within five metres. Yeah, I didn't want to bring that up, mate, to be completely honest. But now you've got me on a roll. I feel like there's a few things we probably need to discuss, but maybe we'll do that, you know, off off recording. So that's that's fine, though. But thanks for reopening old wounds. It's all good. Um, anyway, swiftly moving on. There's loads more I think we could talk about in that, but um, already conscious of time. So, Matt, we're going to come to you. What is it that you're going to discuss with us? Lovely. So I'm... I was, uh, I'm passionate about grassroots coaching, especially sort of youth sport and the experiences that young people have um, when they play sport. Because if we look at sort of general trends, we, we can see um, a tailing off of participation in sport of young people. So certainly organised sport. Um, and an idea that I was sort of reading about the other day is uh, I was actually on uh, the Sport New Zealand website. So it's balanceisbetter.org.nz. And um, basically, New Zealand Sport have turned around and said um, they've brought together national governing bodies for so New Zealand rugby, New Zealand netball, um, hockey New Zealand, New Zealand football. And they've brought them together and they said, look, we are not allowing young people to specialize in a sport we are encouraging them to sample a wide range of sports so this was what nearly about a year and a half ago they turned around and they said this and it's a philosophy statement basically where they've um they've come up with this an evidence-based philosophy um that underpins sort of the entirety of sport in new zealand youth sport in new zealand um, and I've sort of I've just been fascinated reading up about this because we have such a fragmented system in the UK of sport and what coach education looks like for all of our different sports. And I'm a person that's thrived by playing multiple sports. So uh, I've played sort of rugby union as a kid. I played football. You know, I played hockey. I played rugby league. Um, you know, I'm now into my mountain biking, cycling, you know, I used to BMX, you know, I find joy and pleasure in movement. And I just think I see a lot of coaching, which which limits that by and even, you know, adult influence on kids, parents, whoever, that limits kids to playing certain uh, activities because these adults around them are saying look you have to specialize in this far too early on in sort of their life cycle um so yeah that's it's not really an article or anything but they've got an entire website dedicated to this philosophy and this approach can i ask about when when they are allowed to then specialize so do they say you all the way through uh, junior school and high school they have to try everything and they can't specialize the whole way or is there sort of a, an age there they do specialise in? It's based on um, a piece of research called the developmental model of 
um, participation of, of youth participation. So it sort of roughly translates into primary school, you should sample everything. You should not be limited at all. So it's not saying you cannot specialise, but it's saying, look, this is the approach and none of our sports governing bodies will say that you need to specialise and play this single sport. Um, so um, that and then sort of the next phase is this um, specialising phase where you start to maybe specialise into a group. So, you know, I listed pretty much off all invasion games, you know rugby, football, hockey. So you'd start to specialise, you start to think, actually, I want to play organised team sports. No, actually, I want to go into um, individual lifestyle activities. Maybe I want to just go into recreational sport. Um, so that tends to be more secondary age. And then you kind of have a choice of routes. Again, you can go off into recreational sport and activity, or you go into what's called the investment phase, where you invest heavily in a single sport. But that tends to be 16 plus is sort of what the research says, um, says on that. And the ideas behind it is if you have a broad range of activities, if you have, you know, that you've got a broad range of skills and um, enjoyment in, you have options in later life. So for me, I had to retire, for, I, I say retire as if I was any good. Um, I had to quit rugby league when I was about 26 because of concussions. And that was it, I couldn't play rugby, that was my identity. But I had options to go and still be physically active rather than just sit around and not enjoy anything. So the idea is it, it gives you those options, but also um, it's to, develop a broader range of skills and also to limit maybe injuries and repetitive injuries um, so a lot of early specialization sports we see quite young retirements from so gymnastics for example because you see um, overuse injuries tennis is another example where you see a lot of injuries um, yeah Matt, what do you think the impact of pathways is on early specialization I, one of those kind of thought experiments I, I come back to quite often is if you took away professionalized sport in any sport and so there's no pathway actually what would the the landscape below that look like because i i tend to think it starts to kind of drip feed down and everyone's got that dream of being a professional sports person in whatever they're going to kind of do mm. some people are completely realistic and like it's a dream i mean i still you know dream of playing for england and i'm 37 and uh, that'll be a lot i'd be a long way down eddie's list um but uh, for some, it, it seems to be, and again, is it parental influence? Do, do, does that all come as a package? I just wonder what your thoughts are on how um, how much pathways influence that. I think I think um, I think if we're looking, especially at young age, so if we're thinking real early specialisation, so sort of from the ages of six, you know, you see these football academies, official football academies for these um, Premiership football teams, and it's like an under tens team, which is completely ridiculous, and you think. Yeah, the 10 year old probably does want to be a professional footballer and they probably will really enjoy putting on a West Brom top because their dad loves West Brom. You know, there's the, the big influence in their life. You know, they don't suddenly go away and um, watch match of the day at 10 o'clock at night. You know, they watch it with their parents. So, of course, it's the parental influence. It's the adults in their life that are socially influencing these kids. So I think... Um, you know, but even as you as you move up the food chain, when sort of freedom of choice comes in, um, maybe teenage years, then 
yeah, maybe that's, but that's the specialising phase anyway. So that's when you start to get, identify your own identity. Um, but if we think about it in terms of what is defined as a child, it's under 18. So any choice as a child, technically children don't have choices under the age of 18. And if they're sort of made to do something, which, you know, they might say they want to do it, but they, you know, we don't know if they do or not because they're children, you know, that's sort of a bit murky ethically, I think, as well. I think there's probably a few things around that as well in terms of social pressure and um, from, from as you say, from parents, but peer pressure and all those types of things as well, that suddenly something is kind of not cool or it's not the in thing to do anymore. And I wonder whether that's where the kind of the lifestyle sports come into that kind of piece. And I wonder if they've actually now got a different problem in that now that skateboarding and those types of things, surfing are going to go to the Olympics, they've kind of now got to put a pathway into a sport that's kind of not done really well off the back of, they're never in competition with, but it, but it, it's, it, it's brilliant because it's a lifestyle thing. You kind of, you adopt that lifestyle of a skater or a surfer or whatever you're going to kind of be. And now they've almost got to kind of formalize that. And I'd be fascinated to see just actually how that changes some of that lifestyle element where people are going like this isn't this isn't part of the lifestyle like why am i why am i now being pushed towards something because the olympic ideals have never been that big for those types of sports so i'd be interested in, in you know everyone's perspective on do we think that's a good thing do we think it's a bad thing like where does that sit with people i i i think um it's it's a difficult one, like bringing in like things like surfing and skating, because I know that they've just put breakdancing into the Olympics. And that's another one to add into that. Um, how can you, you know, formalize or put together what is technically a crew and put them into, you know, a national team? Um, so there's lots of like ideologies and, and things like that that go alongside it. Um, but it's also it's systemizing, you know, something that is an basically it's an art form it's a creative art form um and then you've got you know you've got to figure out how you're going to put judges into that situation although they have got like certain styles of judges but are they to the criteria of of the olympics um yeah that i think that's a that's a really that's a really interesting point um and it's it's not necessarily it's a pathway. It's not it's not something that you would do at school. It's some it's it's recreational, isn't it? Um, they're all recreational sports, um, and it's not something that they're going to even put into schools either. Which is unless I'm sure they probably do surfing in Australia um, as a recreational sport. Um, and Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea of recognizing sports that aren't. Like, as you say, breakdancing is one that I don't know how many schools teach, but what I think a lot of schools do, and I love the idea of having such a broad range of sports in the in primary schools, junior schools, is there needs to be progression because there's no point. Um, it's what I'm doing here is trying to have a progression from junior school up to the senior school because there's no point trying to get them into something that then just stops when they move into high school, senior school. You need to try progress. So... If you're going to have breakdancing at school, there needs to be somewhere to go for senior school or at least after school clubs 
And then just the, I think what I find is once ever you leave school, if you don't go to university, it's really hard to find sports clubs that you feel comfortable just turning up at. Cause I don't know, often it's people from university who's, who's made that hockey club or rugby club, or those very generic sports, but thinking about things like parkour, it's hard to find. So I think, I don't, I, I can't give an opinion really about the Olympic pathway, but in terms of actually having opportunities for all those sports as adults is really nice. The more there are out there, the more people will join in. And I think what the pandemic's done is a lot of people have tried a lot of new things at home, like done those videos for parkour's a bad example, maybe, but like gymnastics and things that they can do at home where they feel safe and no one's watching them. And then they might actually want to go out now and try it. Cause they're like, I've tried it at home. I've enjoyed it. I've met people and I know them already. Now I'm ready to go when I'm allowed to go out again, I can go meet them properly and actually have a good time it socially as well as learning that new skill. But yeah, I, I mean, pathway-wise in terms of going after, after school, I think is more important right now than the Olympic one, just in terms of getting participation up, as, as Matt was saying. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is a debate and a discussion we have with the, the PE students about understanding your local environment as well so are there pathways and some of the you know we had um we had my friend who's a, a, a local teacher and you know she makes sure that she makes contact with local clubs if you know she's done a, a rugby session in a in a lesson she'll make sure that there's a pathway out of that lesson into into that but i think i think you've touched upon what i think is is a massive issue and why we're seeing declining um declining participation is this fragmentation of society and not knowing your neighbors and the club the local sports club not being the hub of the community anymore um you know i i play hockey for my hockey club because uh somebody asked me to come and play for them you know just off the cuff matt we need a player um one of my friends and i've played for them ever since but i needed that contact to get in there it's like my partner she she uh, she left gymnastics um and she just had nothing to do because try finding an adult gymnastics club it's it's, it's quite difficult um and then try going to it uh, it's even more difficult but she um she started crossfit because her friend's dad ran a crossfit gym she absolutely loves it now but it was that connection that was needed and i think that's sometimes you need to do the activity the sport that's most convenient to you it's why i got into riding a bike because i had to do something and the one thing i you know i could ride a bike i can do that by myself um so i think i think you highlight sort of the broader issue i think a lot of blame gets put on pe teachers uh and for this big drop off after school but I think it's lack of opportunity and social opportunity not maybe physical opportunities but those social opportunities I, th I think that's a really interesting one and then if you I guess could do a bit more digging around the New Zealand model I'd be fascinating to what their kind of government support looks like because I know um, ours is very much around numbers and participation has effectively become a competition between governing bodies to hit targets to get the funding. And I wonder if New Zealand have changed that model, I'd be fascinated because I, I genuinely think that drives most of what we see here in terms of 
models are around retention or growth or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's putting that onus on, we need to keep kids. We need to have more kids. There's only a finite number of kids. I think, and a lot of them will do multiple things anyway. So actually, where where are all these new growth targets coming from? Well, we're probably going to end up robbing them from another sport. And actually, if all those sports have sat down in the same room and said, you know, we want a transient population amongst our sports, and we're really comfortable with that, and the funding isn't reliant on us exponentially growing, you know, over the next 10 years or five years or whatever the budget cycle is, I'd be fascinated to just see how that then trickles down because is it then the coach on the Sunday morning going, I don't want you going off and playing something else after this because we've got a big game next week and you might get injured. Like actually how, how far down the, the pyramid, I guess, does, does that kind of philosophy run? Because if it runs all the way to the bottom, then it would be incredible. And there's always going to be outliers. I get that. But I, I, I think that's a big, it's a big message to sell from government to NGBs all the way through. And as much as I would love to think we could do something similar, from my experience, I think it would be you just encounter so many brick walls. It'd be incredible. Mm. This, this is why I was so fascinated by the New Zealand um, statement of intent, because it's it's signed by the chief execs of these NGBs. And I'm just looking at that in amazement because... Um, and I think that, you know, this is probably from my background, you know, I'm, I'm a code switcher from rugby union to rugby league. And that is possibly one of the worst relationships of all time between national governing bodies. The, the rugby union has actively tried to destroy rugby league since its inception, um, you know, because of the fear that this code would overtake the other code. There's, you know, it's the definition of what you're saying, Phil, in terms of, we are uh, the national governing bodies can't seem to work together but i think it is because of the environment that's created this competitive environment for numbers and funding from um sport england and uk sport and um i just think it's it's the most amazing thing to see you know these what a successful country this country is in the sports that it's good at for the population it has and they're all working together to improve that as well Go on, Emma, you look like you're going to jump in. I was going to say, I think it's a great idea not having, you know, development pathways to, up to the age of 16. Um, from a mental health perspective, um, you know, the amount of children that get through at an early age, I know children in, that are going to football camp, um, camps from the age of eight. So they, they're travelling miles to go to, like, football clubs because they're in an academy um but also it, it's that like being able to sustain it when you know other players who have grown have come through but also it's the it's the mental side in in particular around sort of the UK it, it's the it's the straight drop-off that it's we're not we're not taking you on we're taking the this percentage through um and it's it's a it's a detrimental to any you know teenagers health any you know minors health um to think that they're going somewhere and then you know be dropped at like you know a split second um of a hat like i've always said there should be like a six month transition period when it comes to any kind of development pathway um and you know there should be some kind of counseling around it for them to be able to kind of 
continue on their pathway and you know and help and sort of mentorship around it but it, it takes that out of equation it just the sport becomes about like enjoying it practicing it developing it like developing yourself in the sport or whatever sport it is that you're taking on and you know picking the bits that you enjoy um and developing it that develop it's about self-development isn't it by taking out any kind of competition um I also put down about the it being very parent driven so if you look at you know young triathletes I had a conversation with a friend who was a coach and I was trying to kind of get across him and across him and say you know what kind of um groups of children you know have accessibility to you know a road bike road shoes um and be able to travel to be able to do a sport like that um so it is it's very kind of I'm trying to think of the correct term and I'm sure you can help me with that um but I think certain sports can be very driven by the parents and you know around time money um and I think for some it's not accessible and I think for some it's something that they that some children could benefit from um but they don't have you know support and time around it but um I, I think I personally think it's a great it's a great idea um I agree I think the thing I hate or have hated a lot is ability groups I know in teaching that ability groups have a time and place but in sports I feel like that's the thing I hated the most as a child is they took all the best players and focused on them. They got a private coach came in and helped them. I'm remembering specifically tennis and then us who weren't deemed good enough. And we sort of, we got a coach, which was great, but we didn't get the same, the same sort of access to that. And it made us feel, we knew we weren't the best. So we didn't really try. We just had a good time, which is fine. But actually after I left school, I then went and became a tennis coach. And I was like, if I had just pushed a little bit more and if we'd all had the same access, then I might have been better at school and actually played for the team. Because and I just felt really sad about that. And I've never wanted a child to feel that way. I want every child to have the same thing. And if anything, mix your group. I, I never want to rate children ever. Just throw them all in together, mix them up every week. So you've got your stronger ones. And yeah, the children might know they're stronger, but then they think, oh, they're on my team. That's great. They can help me. And the weaker ones know that they're not, they're not looked at as you're weaker and we don't want you. You're looked at as you're going to help our team. We're all going to help each other as a team. It's not an individual sport. Like very few sports are actually individual. Even things like tennis, you've still got a coach. You've still got, uh, if you're doubles, you've still got someone to help you. And that's what I think some sports and some schools need to work on from, um, I mean, from where we are here, I definitely think that we try to mix up as much as possible, but it's just, I just remember that so vividly from when I was at school. Yeah. Peer learning is a, is a big, is a big uh, driver. It, it, it helps you grow to be better because you, you create a focus on, you know, trying to be able to get past past one of the better players but taking them out of that situation you know it, it's not it's not great for everyone um and then you know that the, it's you know pressure cooker environment on those children that are better when actually what they probably need is they they need the ability to be able to be that peer show someone else how to do it allow someone else to be able to build the skills to be able to you know achieve a pass past them um, and for them to be able to learn. 
um, rather than be be taken out of the environment. So I think I, I agree with how you know you mix things up because it teaches you know all the any any child to be able to be a leader, but also be able to work in a team. Um, it's it's a great skill for any any child to be able to build on themselves. Yeah, and I, I and I think sometimes you know those those kids that maybe um, have developed the physical skills that they can you know outperform uh, other children at that age. Sometimes that pressure on them, they just want to be in an environment where they can enjoy it again, rather than in a pressured uh, pressured environment where you know they're they're having to be seen as the best because they've been given this label as. Uh, you know top group or, or or whatever as well so I think sometimes we um, as adults think of children as little adults but they're not um, you know like we've said they're not developed so everything we do has an has an influence on them I just wanted to go back to your point Emma T about um, uh, advantage and, and social um, sort of the socioeconomic impact um, did you know that a third of all of our medals at uh, the 2012 Olympics were from privately schooled, uh, privately educated uh, athletes, but only 7% of people in the country go to private schools? I didn't, but I, I could have guessed it. <laughs> but that's, that's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Did you know that already or did you have it on a piece of paper ready? It's one of my favourite stats. Is it? <laughs> yeah. I, it, just, it just gives an insight into the advantage that you get from an affluent background or uh, an, or the environments that, that you can be within. You know, it's a bit like the England Rugby Union team. Um, you see the men's team, sort of it's usually around half or over half that are privately educated now a lot of those are scholarships so it's not about um it's not about anything to do with maybe affluence but those environments are geared towards um those performance outcomes which i find uh, quite interesting that, that's really interesting but i can i i would be able to guess that because i've i've worked in both private schools and government funded schools and i'm i'm even amazed at like what some even the nursery children um what they're capable of and what they're being taught and how efficient they are with their like self-belief their knowledge their skills um it's you know it's it's definitely they're five years ahead of any you know private uh sorry every, any public um school um ab absolutely for sure um but that that's really fascinating I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that fact. <laughs> it's good knowledge. Fair play, Matt. Well done. Um, right, we're gonna shift on. Emma H, we are coming to you. What is it you're gonna to talk to us about? So it's actually, as you said, it's following on from what Matt was saying. Um, I've been trying to hold back some of the stuff I wanted to say. So I, I'm gonna talk about an article that I read literally the other day called PE More Than Sport. Um, it appeared on Twitter and I just I related to it so much about PE and sport. Basically, uh, the main part of it is talking about PE and how PE is a part of sport. It talks, uh, PE is a, a physical competence, confidence, and sort of the use of skills, you know, your ABCs, your agility, balance, coordination, and how you, you can use them in a range of activities. So it's how you create your transferable skills to be able to use in any sport. Um, whereas sport, 
it, um, so it's written by a guy called Lewis Keynes. He said that sports sort of a collective now, and it's got loads of different sports in it. So your PE skills are coming in to allow you to play, hopefully, most sports. Because um, sport actually, it isn't just the physical process, it's the social relationships, it's physical, psychological, sociological um, outcomes. And I just, I thought it was so, I, I loved it because I totally agree. And this is where we sort of talk about the sort of public school versus private school is that PE, if you get it alone, you don't always get all the opportunities of team sports because you just don't have the time. So I was in Edinburgh teaching PE, I had two hours a week with each class, but that two hours, by the time they changed and they had to get there, and then obviously at the end of the lesson, they have to change and get back. You've lost already about 20 minutes, depending on how old they are. Um, you don't have a lot of time to teach, go through the, the warm-up, the demonstration, the skill, and then build up to something else and then finish with a the game. There's just not enough time. So moving now, I now work, I'm now working in a private school. You've got PE taught by PE specialists, and then I'm running the games program, which has your team sports. So in PE, they're covering all the ABCs, your basic agility, balance, coordination. And then in games, they're getting all the opportunities to play team sports where they're learning sort of resilience, teamwork, how to be a leader, how to be a follower, how to listen, you know, all those things. And I think, as um, Emma was saying, you can see a massive difference in the children from a private school and a public school, or I think you can, just in terms of, what they know already. They have a lot more time to learn all those skills. Um, I thought this article, um, there was a quote, um, you might have to read it to, to, to uh, see who exactly it's written by, but sort of it says, sport is a part of PE. Physical activity is a focus of sport. Children's development is a focus of physical education. Um, so in sport, we obviously all want to move. We have physical activity, but uh, you also want, the develop you want to develop those skills that children can transfer i think in school we all want to teach these things like resilience and teamwork and it's some of those skills are really hard to do in like a reading lesson or a math lesson and it's much harder for children to be focusing on learning whatever you're teaching in terms of let's say maths and also learn to be resilient and learn to work in a team whereas in sports I think because they're running around, they've got a lot, all those chemicals running around their head, they're feeling better, getting fresh air, they're being with their friends. They're learning those skills without really realizing they're learning them. And that's why I think sport is so important. I think, I'm glad that, that hopefully after the pandemic, everyone's going to hopefully focus more on that. Because I feel like that's what everyone's missing. No one's, everyone's missing the social interactions and the physical activity. And I'm hoping that that will mean it. Um, so yeah, basically this article, the things I took away, which, uh, which I totally agree with, is just sport and PE give access to, to, for children and adults to build crucial life skills that you can use anywhere. Resilience is important in every aspect of life. And if you learn it through sports, I feel like it's easier to apply elsewhere than learning it in English and then applying it in sports, if that makes sense. Um, and Going back to, I think, what Matt was saying, we we're talking about participation and how we think that after school, after you leave school, sometimes you run out of opportunities to, you know, there's no adult gymnastics clubs or very few of them, I would think. Um, 
if you get children really into all those sports, that they get to try them all, learn all those skills, learn all those things, then hopefully by the time they leave school, they're going to want, if there's no hockey club there, they want to start one. If there's no gymnastics club, they want to start one. And if they've got a group of friends who all love the same sports or are more open, they will create their own in that community. And hopefully, as you know, Matt mentioned, we're missing the community drive of sports. When I was in Edinburgh, we started, some of the children did not enjoy PE. It's just, some people don't, that's fine. But we introduced a football team just before I left and the ch- lots of children wanted to join in the football team. That surprised me because they didn't really want to join in at PE, but the football team gave them a chance to be competitive and actually be part of a team and they're learning all those skills and it's after school. It's, I think they see it as, it's different when a coach leads it rather than a teacher sometimes. Um, but just those opportunities at after school and at weekends for match play and for focusing on a specific sport are also really important for some children. Yeah, that's my gist, really. That's it. No, thank you very much. <laughs> we can set the debate, and I'm going to trigger Matt here, which will uh, hopefully be quite enjoyable. So, was are we saying Joe Wicks was delivering PE or not uh, in lockdown? I. Matt's- glasses off he's, he's clearly going to get riled by this <laughs> okay i'm a p i'm a teacher and a PE teacher but i loved joe wicks and i know where the PE teachers are coming from because it's it's not teaching specific abcs but at the same time they were being active they were actually working a lot on coordination i mean actually some of the activities you did i found hard and i was going oh my gosh i've got to get a knee up here and you know i know some children we find that hard so the fact that they're all at home doing that, I think he was amazing, just inspiring. Chil- actually, not just children, a lot of adults. Me and my friends did it. I did it, obviously, because my kids were doing it, but uh, it encouraged so many people to be active when they wouldn't have been. I'm wondering if we're separating physical activity, physical education and sport. Is Are we now getting into a place where there's subtle differences and, and there's probably gray areas in between but go on Matt give us give us your thoughts. I, I'm just going to say no comment to the Joe Wicks thing and to be honest I think I was very quick to judge at the time and um, I think my my only issue was I'm, I'm well aware teachers go through a lot of training and teaching is a very difficult thing and creating a video online I don't I, I thought it belittled the education um uh, sort of teachers and I thought it belittled the education part of physical education and you know the way that you speak with such passion Emma you know about how complicated PE is and how nuanced it all is I just thought it it got rid of all that but like you said it did inspire you know and actually in that moment when we were in a national lockdown it got people active so um my issue was more with him calling himself a PE teacher when he um he couldn't even hack it as a TA um and he almost failed his sports degree when he tried to do it um by the way you quoted one of my favorite quotes of all time that's John Evans and Dawn uh, Penny um it's that's one of my favorite articles John Evans is one of my favorite authors so um yeah I've just tweeted it out actually because I love it I totally loved that. It's it's the bit of that article that I just he'd obviously quoted someone else, but just resonated. But I I totally understand where you stand with Joe Wicks. I think 
I think a lot of people, I, I follow a lot of PE teachers on Twitter um, and a lot of people are upset about him saying he's a PE teacher. But I think from the, as you say, it's about perspective and the perspective of just needing people to be active. It was better because they could, as a PE teacher, so I posted out little videos for my classes to have a go at. And some of some children loved them and joined in and sent me videos and some didn't. Whereas if it's live, I think it just gave everyone a, I need to be up for nine o'clock. I can see lots of people, they're all commenting and he, sh he might shout out my name. I just, I mean, as an adult, I quite enjoyed it and I felt a lot better after it. <laughs> do, do you think we maybe need to find the balance between a model is I remember kids at school, and again, I mean, that's a long time ago now, but that they, they just weren't really into PE. But then you say that there's those that want to play sport. So do we think it's about finding what they enjoy and then trying to steer them towards, actually, if you really enjoy football or rugby or hockey, whatever it is, well, this PE thing might make you move a bit better and actually might give you some more enjoyment in what you're doing and kind of that... I guess that's the challenge with a curriculum that it, it can be quite predefined and it's not particularly flexible for everybody but I, I do wonder whether there's that space of let's let's just get more kids doing a little bit more of everything with a view to this this can help because I, I'm not convinced and I, I haven't been in a school for ages so again this is a real it could be completely wrong but if we bracket PE as it's x and y and z and I just worry, I worry whether there would be a connection, whether kids can then recognise, well, actually, by me doing some gymnastics, that will make me jump better or run better or move better when I come and play football. Because actually, as you said, I really love the social connection and the competitiveness and everything else. And it, do we do enough or is there is there something else we could be doing in that gap to kind of get more transfer? I think you need teachers and coaches and I think it's coming in more are making you make it relevant. So whatever you're practicing, you ask the children, why do you think we're doing it? We're not just learning to jump. We don't just jump around in life. When are you going to use it? Because actually once they know why it's relevant and they can relate it to other sports, that's when they're like, oh, that's really important. And I think gymnastics is one of the best examples, just because there are so many skills in gymnastics that there are lots of strength and conditioning things that you just you wonder why on earth you're doing them but then when the children see how it helps and you can show them then they're like oh I have to practice that I'll do it at home because now I know I can't do that without that yeah it's making it's all about being relevant really I think that's actually one of my favorite questions to ask on Twitter every now and again is if if you are constructing um for want of a better word, the perfect sports person, what are the sports you get them to do early to create that, that base? And gymnastics is always one that comes up from most people. And I would tend to kind of lean towards probably basketball for hand-eye and then maybe some swimming for kind of body movement and strength and stuff. But I, I do think gymnastics just has so many benefits for everything. Um, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it always, I and dance as well, just actually that movement, your ability you know you think of the just lateral movement all those types of things footwork coordination I just wonder if we do miss a little bit of a trick in in trying to kind of tee up more people as going back to Matt's point about you know doing more earlier to then be able to be better at specializing later um I, how we how we go about that I've got no idea whether that's even the right thing to be suggesting but um as you say it's, it's just about giving more access yeah, and uh, I just wanted to go back to this idea of this private school model where 
where we we separate out PE from sport and I think sometimes sport comes with this idea that there's a direct comparison between physical skill and I think once we take that away from PE we can focus more on the learning and the development so like like you're listing off specific sports there Phil but in PE why give even give them the label of of sports you know and and like you said Emma and this is something I use a lot in my coaching but also my lecturing is starting with the why get them on board relate it to them and get them to see why it's relatable um oh yeah yeah I'm with you the so actually the curriculum for excellence you know they they give you statements about PE and the skills they want you to learn and you can choose the sports and that's what I did quite like about it. As a new teacher, I think that's quite hard if you're starting out. But um, all these, the new benchmark system, it's quite nice. You can look at what skill they want to learn and you can be like, right, today we're going to learn it in basketball. But then the next lesson, we're going to transfer it and use it in netball. And that's when they can see, oh, that same skills over there. That's really interesting. They're different sports. And uh, the coach that I worked with on hockey last term, he often, with the girls, compared, oh, in netball, you probably do a similar thing. And I think to, to me as well, and to them, they were just like, oh, my gosh, they're two completely different sports. How are they similar? But actually, in the way you have your sort of channels of people, like there's three sort of channels on a hockey pitch, netball court, and how you move around in them and create space is quite similar. And I thought that was really interesting for me as a coach. I'd never thought about comparing them at all. And actually, as a, if I'm feeling that way, then obviously children will just be like, whoa, um, I can transfer. It doesn't matter that it's a different sport. It's a stick and a ball versus me throwing like a netball. I can still transfer that skill. I wonder whether this is where some of the kind of the video game design stuff that I know Amy Price and a few others have kind of looked at and actually just that, again, relating it to something that they probably engage with away from a, an activity-based element, but they're designed in such a way that it's so engrossing and it's so engaging it doesn't really matter what you're doing I mean there's some of I still remember they're probably some of the most fun sessions I had where you're kind of just making up your own games you know you've just picked up a ball and it, it you know bouncing it off the wall and then you're trying to throw it at the back of the hoop do you know what I mean you just kind of go and this, this makes no sense to anybody other than the people involved in that game um and it's just play but actually how much more stuff can we just pull out of that environment and and again it kind of just they all there's I guess threads across all of it but but we can separate them and, and do we need to separate it all as much as we do so um yeah again I think this is one we could we could go on forever talking about and there's there's so many so many layers and so much detail but um yes I, I, we will kind of finish that one off there so um we'll do a quick round the houses for um suggestions for other content so Emma T we are coming to you uh what are you suggesting people take a look at um I have um, suggested a TED talk um, from Brighton. Um, let me just pull it up. It's it's to do with dyslexia, and um, and it's something that really really fascinates me um, because it's it's about how dyslexic brains think differently, um, and for it to be seen as as more of a superpower um, than um, than anything and it's quite kind of controversial how they go about the start of it um, around um, dyslexia 
Um, but the points that come out of it are are quite fascinating. Um, I know that I've experienced, um, you know, children in schools and they they tend to be more physically active or engaged in sports. Um, and actually, from from my point of view, they're really good at like being really innovative and like finding ways around like the rules so they've read they're amazing because I think they keep as a coach you, they keep you on your toes because you've got to keep learning and adapting so that they can both understand it but also that they're, they're very challenging in the way that you've got to explain or structure games for um not necessarily for them but for them to not find loopholes in so so it, it it's a fascinating um it's a fascinating um youtube clip which phil would put on i can't find it at the moment but uh, uh katie griggs i think is the, the yes so, yeah thank you no, no 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 problem at all fantastic thank you very much for that uh matt what is it you're suggesting people take a look at um so one of the videos that changed the way I thought and the way um, basically I, le I, I lived my life was um, The Power of Vulnerability by Bren Brown, which was it's a TED talk from about 10 years ago, but just changed my life. Um, but she's just sort of this time last year brought out a Netflix series um, called uh, The Call of Courage. Um, and um, I'd suggest checking that out because, again, it it'll influence your life as well as your coaching wonderful and who who is that by sorry uh so that's bren brown um and it's a netflix uh documentary series wonderful. wonderful yeah we'll put the link up on the on the blurb as well so great stuff uh emma what are you suggesting sorry um i so i think i missed this bit so i am going to suggest something so i went to a talk by ben ryan who was the England rugby coach who then led Fiji to gold in the Olympics. Um, and he, uh, I found it, it was so interesting listening to him, but then I also got his uh, book from it. So Seven's Heaven. I really liked the way he talks about how he had to change his coaching to go from the England team, which had a lot of resources and a lot of different things to what Fiji had and how he had to adapt and how he knew his players better and just about making them accountable. It wasn't just, you're not the coach to just boss everyone around and tell them what to do. You're the coach to help them be able to learn the skills to organize themselves and work as a team and that sort of thing. And I think that just, I really enjoyed his talk and I really enjoyed his book. And I think if you're a coach, it was really interesting just reading how that played out. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, great stuff. Right. Um, yeah, just as a, a big, big thank you to all three of you for coming on. Really enjoyed the discussion. Um, I guess, yeah, probably more educational focused, which is which is a good thing because um, just a shift, slight shift in the dynamic of, of where the conversation has been. But it's been it's been awesome. So uh, thank you very much. I'm going to round up the roundup. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to a really insightful and excellent discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like, and share. Let's thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Bye.